0: Hey, um, I wanted to, We I don't think we've published anything yet with official times for Christmas Eve. So right now, um, 6 o'clock on Christmas Eve for our candlelight service. So one of the things that we uh, encourage every year is uh, for everybody to be a part, you know, of Christmas Eve service. It's, uh, I don't know, for me traditionally becomes like a kind of a Christian tradition of, being in church on Christmas Eve. I think there's one place that a, a Christian needs to be, and that's in church on Christmas Eve. So um, so encourage everybody to mark your calendars, be a part of that. I know people travel and do different things. Um, it's also like Pat was saying, it's a great opportunity to invite people because lots of people are willing to come on Christmas, and so, um, you know, and if you'll bring them, if you'll extend an invitation, if you'll pick them up, if you'll meet them at the door, do something to make them feel comfortable to come. You know, as a church, really, it's just something that I, I, I used to, I think, encourage a lot more than I do now, and I probably should, should go back to it, but just encouraging us to be a church that is on mission and that we're, you know, we are inviting and that it's your job to to invite and to grow and healthy sheep begat healthy sheep and so that you have in a kind of a little uh uh, a vision and mission and passion to see people come to Jesus really that's that's our goal and it's as simple as you maybe you're not a a preacher or or don't feel comfortable sharing the gospel but you can very easily invite somebody to church and pick them up and I think the the Varna stats say that you know you'd be surprised I think the number is like 60 percent of people hold said that if somebody invited them, they would come to church. So, you know, maybe you just you get intimidated. You never know, but it doesn't hurt to ask and, um, encouraging people. And again, Christmas Eve is a good opportunity to get that off the ground. Amen. All right. And then, um, on the, uh, the security ministry, um, it's not required, but it's preferred that, um, those that serve in the security ministry have a concealed carry permit. Um, uh, so if, um, you're out there, and you fit that category. Um, I want to encourage you in that. That's something that just, we need a lot of help, and it's something anybody can do. I know it's a time commitment, but other than that, um, you know, you sit in, in, this, in the lobby of the children's ministry, and you hang out, and you, you know, you make sure our kids stay safe, and, um, you know, a lot of it is just hanging out. You don't have a lot to really do other than show up and be there and be a presence and, and, and help keep the, the, the children's ministry staff and children safe over there. So it's a big need. But it does take commitment. And, and some of the same guys are doing a lot of the services. So um, it is an area we want to encourage um, you to think about, step up. And again, it's not required that you have a concealed carry permit. Um, so if you if you don't and you still want to serve, you, you, you're you still welcome to serve. But we encourage you guys to someone to step up in that area. Amen? All right. If you have your Bibles, open them up. We're ready for Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse number thirty. You know, this week has been, uh, or yesterday, I guess, was was kind of exciting. I got on the phone with uh, Lydia's dad yesterday. Pastor Gerald called me, called me to ask me for Pat's number, and he started just telling me about his week. and He was telling me about some of the things that God is doing. and As you know. Um, we shared a couple weeks ago that our church here, and one of the things I do professionally is I, I work for CBI, Calvary Bible Institute, and so um, Pastor Gerald is the president of CBI. It's, it's, a, it's a 10-month training program, intense training program for pastors and leaders where they go through the entire Bible in 10 months, and they, they have hands-on training, and they serve in ministry, and they, they take classes all day, every day. They serve in the evenings, and... Um, and then we take the, the, the students that have come through this 10-month program and we place them in churches doing um, internships. And so um, Pastor Gerald was just telling me yesterday that uh, we are um, – we've started five new CBIs in the last, like, very short amount of time. And they're all international. Any, anything in the United States is um, – the Calvaries are doing different things. They're a different name. But with CBI – so we, we, ha, we have started a CBI in Israel, so there's a CBI in Israel, in Peru, uh, we're getting ready to start, we're working on starting a, a CBI in Uganda, um, off of Lake Victoria, there's a little island there that we have access to, and a pastor, and a work that's happening in Uganda, um, Peru, some of these were pre-existing um, Calvary schools and things, and they got on board with what we're doing with CBI, and CBI has become the official Bible college for Calvary Chapel. And so, on the international scope, um, the, they're they're working on them and, and starting different um, sections of Calvaries. and there's there's lots of opportunity. The Philippines, I think, I, I, I think there's seven. And Georgia, okay, that would be the sixth. The sixth and the seventh one would be the, the main campus in, in Joshua Tree, Yucca Valley, California. So the country of Georgia. But within that, one of the things that I didn't get to in our vision casting service a couple of weeks ago when we shot off the Confetti Canyon, that one, you remember that? Yeah. Um, in that service at the end, I wanted to kind of kind of give everybody a little kind of heads up vision-wise for us as a church where we want to go in the next year or two. Now we've, we've been spending every penny that we have as a church on our infrastructure, buying this building on remodeling on, on growing, but we're going to enter a season very soon where all that's going to be done. And then, and then as um, you know, right now, again, we we've been, Lydia does the books and um, her and I have survived this last year, but barely a couple times because I've taken the account so low that <laughs> she doesn't like that. And she gets upset with me and, but I have more faith than her. And and I'm just a man of faith. And I tell her that. You just don't have faith. And she says, no, I have faith. You just don't do math. (laughs) Okay, that's fine. But... We, we are going to, I promise, as a church. We're going to reach a point, and we have already in the past multiple times. God's been so faithful to us, and we've, we made a commitment as a church that we were going to build as God provided. We weren't going to go into debt. God provided supernaturally since November 1st of last year $100,000 that we've been able to use to remodel this, this church. All paid for, no debt. Um, so we're, we're, we're probably $10,000, $8,000 away from finishing that. When we're done, done. The next season we're going to go into of um, we're going to enter into a season of trying to focus on and developing some foreign missions programs in our church. So part of that is opportunity for us as a church to get behind some foreign mission works and support them financially. Now, we, we highly, highly vet these 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 programs and these missions that we're going to be a part of making sure that every dollar that we invest is sharing the gospel, is seeing people's lives change for Jesus Christ. And the nice thing is we have um, firsthand personal relationships with several of these foreign missions that we're going to get involved in. The second thing that's a little exciting is that we will provide over the next year or two opportunity for us as a church to go to some of these missions works and and serve the Lord. And I'll tell you, there's something in the life of a Christian, I want to encourage you in this, something to pray about, think about, to do a two-week mission. And really, the, the, it's great to go and serve somewhere for two weeks. And we just go and we, we identify some places that works are happening and going. And we go there and, and we, we get on the ground. And whether we do construction or outreach or witnessing or in the Philippines, it was an orphanage. And so we served in the, in the nursery holding babies and changing diapers. And, uh, but we just went and served the works there. But what that does in your own heart and life. It's life-changing. It really is for you and the growth that happens in your life going and serving on a mission. Now, nobody pays for you to go and serve there. You have to pay for yourself, buy your own tickets, provide for your own mission and and those types of things. But it's life-changing, and it's something that we want to do as a church that eventually after we kind of finish our base, we want to start praying about um, – and we can't do a lot of things well. But if we can keyhole on a few things, we can do those well. And we'll keyhole on a few areas as a church that we identify. We feel like God is leading this church in being a part of, and, and making a difference. And this is eternal fruit, you guys. This really is that that these are real, real things. You know, and I share all the time. You know, we support Vlad, who's in the country of Georgia. He's the one that's going to start the CBI there. God gave him a three-story house, a hundred yards away from the big river in Tbilisi. To, I can never say that right. Tbilisi, um, Georgia. And, and he's going to um, put this, the Calvary Bible Institute there and be, and be raising up students from Iran and Georgia and Russia um, to go back and, and do ministry in their countries. And so we support Vlad. And one day you're going to get to heaven and somebody's going to approach you and say, I'm so thankful that you, you told me about Jesus. I'm so thankful that you came to Georgia to share the gospel. And you're going to say, well, I, didn't, I never went to Georgia. And they're going to say, I know Vlad went for you. But you have credit in that. You get glory in that. We'll get credit in that. That's the way it works biblically because we supported it. We helped. We're a part of it. And so the Bible says whether you go or you, or you send, that the reward in heaven is the same. So there is some real, real value in that. And again, there, there's value in us being able to do works on four missions. There's also opportunity and value in us being able to send folks who want to do some short-term missions trips to go and, and serve in some, in some short-term missions. Do you know how full-time missionaries are made? Usually it's going on short-term missions and your heart gets knit to a place that you go and you come home and that's all you can think about and it consumes you and then God begins to speak to you and call you and you know that you're supposed to go back there and serve full-time. So anyway, something in the future to look for. Amen? Amen. All right, so we're in Hebrews chapter 30 where we left off last week. Now we know we've been following the, the journey of faith in this thing we've called the faith hall of fame. So by faith, We started with Abel, and then by faith, Enoch, and and by faith, Noah, and by faith, Abraham, and by faith, Sarah, and and by faith, Moses, and, and by faith, Jacob, and Joseph, and Isaac. And then we come to 30, and we see by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled seven days. So we have been on this journey of faith. And what is it as a Christian to walk in faith? Now, I've warned us from the beginning what faith is not. Faith is not a blind faith where we just don't have any substance. We don't have any evidence. We don't have any historical or archaeological or any kind of textual proof that that any of this is true, that we just believe blindly. That's not the faith that we have. It's not what God calls or desires of any of us because faith is the substance of things not seen, the evidence of of things unseen. And, And so our faith is in something that is real and tangible. And we have we have real faith. Now I want to tell you again what faith is not. And, and as we look through every one of these stories of the men and women that that God highlights, and really what it is, it's it's ordinary people like you and I. And that's supposed to be encouraging. That the, the Bible says that these men and women that they that they have like passions, which means that they're they're built just like you and I. God didn't instill in them some X Men um genome dna that gives them superpowers to follow jesus better than the rest of us to have more faith than the rest of us that you're created in the image of god just like they were and you have the same opportunity to make stories of faith and be listed in god's faith hall of fame as you live your life to step out for the lord that you have the same opportunity but for these people of faith that we see in these amazing things they're ordinary people who did extraordinary things in the hands of an extraordinary god they're the testimonies of, of amazing feats of miraculous and, and supernatural things that were done by faith. Every one of them. Every one of them astonishing. You know, so many times I think that, that most of us, if, if you consider yourself a Christ follower, and even if you're a, a nominal student of the Word of God, you, you don't have any problem seeing the, the Red Sea parting and believing in those things. Seeing Jonah in the whale and, and Noah on a boat. Seeing Daniel in the lion's den and God closing the mouth of the lions, of the lions. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego placed into a fiery furnace and coming out with their clothes not even smelling like smoke. And the men who carried them into the fire, the fire was so hot it came out and killed the guards, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego walked into a fiery furnace and just walked around like it was Disneyland. And Nebuchadnezzar got so mad, he looked inside and he said, didn't I throw three people into the fiery furnace? And how come I see four? Because Jesus is in there with them, that's how That's why. That's why you see four. And we we, we can believe these things, but we we can't necessarily believe that God can show up in your life and do the same thing, that God can show up in your life and and pay your light bill, that God can show up in your life and and minister to somebody in your life that's hurting or needing or whatever the giant and the thing is in your life. And and the purpose of these stories is to tell you that you can trust God. So don't let these things have any kind of disconnect, that, that there's a reason for this faith hall of fame. And every one of these stories are supposed to encourage us. These people were not super giants. They were normal people that did extraordinary things in the hands of an extraordinary God. And you're normal people that if you place your hands into the hands of an extraordinary God, God can absolutely do extraordinary things in your life. Do any of you believe that you're not capable or able of, of serving the Lord or being used by God in, a, in an extraordinary way? It's just not true. You, you are capable. It's amazing to see what God will do in the hands of of a young man or woman who fully give their life to Jesus. The issue is not never what God can or wants to do through your life. The issue is always the same. It's the distance we want, that we don't want to to go too far or get too radical or too crazy. And we keep ourselves at a distance. But the farther we go in. Now, again, in, in in this aspect of stepping out in faith, you know, something that we, we've encouraged you through this study, to be people of faith, right? I think that was the message last week. Step out in faith. But every one of these people, never one time did God ask them to guess what his will was for their lives. That, that's not faith. That's, that's that, you know, that's religion. Or that's, um, it's, never, it's never faith. It's, you know, it's presumption. I'm presuming. Well, I don't know what God wants me to do. I'm just going to step out in faith, brother. No, you're going to end up in the flesh. You're going to end up doing something that that God never called you to do. You know, it's like the guy who comes and says, Oh, pastor, I've been persecuted for Jesus' name's sake. Oh, really? What's going on? Well, I stand on the corner and I yell at people and they throw things at me. I'm like, well, you're not being persecuted for Jesus' sake. You're being persecuted because you're a freak. Stop yelling at people in Jesus' name and they'll stop throwing things at you. And, 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 you know, the, the, the faith doesn't come in, in not knowing the will of God. I, I think that's so important, you guys. I want you to get that. We know the will of God. You discern. You determine the will of God for your life. The faith comes in, in not knowing how God's going to accomplish that and doing it anyways. When Lydia and I were called, we felt called in our hearts to come to Utah from Southern California where things were very good. Lydia's whole family, extended family, was right there. My whole extended family was right there. So we had family on both sides. Our kids were in the most wonderful environment, Christian environment, K-12 through Christian school that was housed on a church with um, 300 students in the school. And, and their teachers were all good friends of Lydia and I. And, and, and they, they learned and studied the Bible every day. Um, we we're, were a sports family. Our school had great sports programs. We won 10 state football championships in football over the years. We went to the baseball finals. Went to the basketball finals. We never won it in basketball or baseball, but we were a football school. It was okay. As long as the football team kept winning, then the basketball and baseball teams didn't have to win state championships. But the football team, it was a football school, and everything was great, and life was good. And God, God began to stir our hearts to, to leave all that and come to Utah. And we had no idea what was ever, would ever come of anything. We had nothing. We came and we, we, we bought a house. We burned some bridges, and we, we planted roots before we got here because we knew God had called us. And we began to invite a few people to a Bible study in our home on a Wednesday night. And eventually God did this, and I I had no idea. But but listen, we, we didn't say, oh, I don't know what God's doing, but I want to step out in faith somewhere, so we're going to just pack up and move to Utah. No, we knew without a doubt. And we spent months, six months, seeking the Lord, praying, fasting, asking people around us, asking people around us to pray for us, and waiting for God to confirm in our hearts. Well, actually, my wife's started. My, he confirmed in my heart a long time ago. We were just waiting on her. But eventually, eventually, God was able to speak to her. And um, when, when God spoke to us both, because I wasn't coming unless God spoke to Lydia, apart from anything that I said or felt, that like she had to know that she knew she was called to come to Utah. And, and, and when, when that happened, now we have opportunity to step out in faith. We know the will of God. We know what God wants. Now are we going to be obedient? Are we going to take this challenge? Who knows? Maybe the people in Utah are going to hate me. Yeah, that's happened. <laughs> I'm still here. But, you know, I don't know. Like, But we're going to come. When we when we first found a storefront in, in, in on Main Street here when church first started, it was $1,250 to rent what used to be just this one wing. There was a wall right here. And within two weeks before we had our first Sunday, God said we were supposed to rent this side. and And, and I knew. It was, so, it was so clear and so exciting. God said, I want you to rent the other side. I had no money. The church literally had negative $200, read $200 in our, in our church account. And God said, I want you to rent the other side. It, that was cool because I had opportunity to step out in faith. And so I did. I made all the arrangements, and I stepped out in faith not knowing how God I, – I, I didn't know how God was going to pay for it. But God's done that so many times. When we came to buy this building last year, we, we, we needed – we had 60000 and we had to begin all the work with the banks and the people and the loans and all this stuff was getting official. And, 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 and we, we needed 90,000 90, November 1st. On, in July, late July, August, when we began the process, we, we were 30,000 short. And we, and we knew God called us and we didn't know where the money was going to come from. But we stepped out in faith. And on November 1st, miraculously, we had enough to write that $90,000 check. I had a little left over. So, so again, a lot of that very painstakingly, and I spent some time because I want you to understand that as we teach through faith and what faith is, because faith is something that can be taught very badly, and it can be something that can, can mess Christians up, because if faith is taught in such a way that if you only had enough faith, you would be happy, healthy, wealthy. If you had enough faith, you would be healed of your sickness. If you had enough faith, you wouldn't struggle with A, B, or C. That's bad theology. It's bad doctrine. You know, there was one of these faith healers, teachers, who, um, who got sick and, and went into the hospital. Big, huge ministry, public TV ministry and the whole nine. And his camp worked so hard to try to keep it out of the media that he was in the hospital. Because he had been preaching that, you know, if you have enough faith that you'll be well and you won't be sick. You know, it, it, what's so ironic about the whole thing is not one person in all of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. That's lots of stories and lives. Not one person lived a happy, healthy, wealthy life. So if that's God's will, he hasn't accomplished it yet, man. Like he's messing up. He can't accomplish his will. If his will is for us to be happy, healthy, wealthy, what you really find is that life is real and life has problems and struggles and ups and downs. And that's all a part of it. And God uses good things and bad things. And he allows you to go through things and he teaches you through things. And and you face persecution. And Jesus said people will hate you and you'll have tribulation and you'll struggle. And it's not easier necessarily to be a Christian. It's definitely better, right? And there's reward. And there's a big picture at the end of, the, at the end of it where you get to go home and be with Jesus. And you get to spend eternity in the, in the presence of God in, in, in real paradise, in real heaven. Amen. Amen. All right, so I better read some verses. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. You want to talk about faith? Joshua had led the, uh, the nation of Israel across the Jordan River. The, the God said to take the Ark of the Covenant and stage five rapids in the Jordan River in this area where they crossed. And God said, I'm not going to stop the water until the priest steps into the water with, with his... With his foot, and everywhere that the priest put, puts his foot, he'll walk on dry land in this place I've given you. And they're on the other side of the Jordan River. They're going to cross in the area where today is modern-day Jericho. So if you're looking at a map, Jerusalem is here. You go down and to the right a little bit towards the Syrian border. Um, not Syria. Syria's up here. This is Jordan, the Jordanian border, and is a place called uh, Jericho. And that would have been near the spot where the nation of Israel crossed the first conquest they had after they left Egypt, wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, crossed over the Jordan River, was Jericho. And so Joshua and the priests lead out, and they step into the Jordan River, and the Jordan River begins to become dry, walled up to their right. And the water begins. And so God had to miraculously stop the water miles way up river and know the exact time they were going to step out in faith and step in the water. And miraculously, the water of the Jordan River begins to stop and begins to wall up. And and two million Jews walk through across the Jordan River into the promised land on dry land. They picked up 12 stones from the Jordan River and made an altar on the other side. And when Joshua gets to the other side, they're going to begin a conquest. And the book of Joshua reads like um, war after war after war. When you read through the book of Joshua, I remember Lydia one time telling me, and and she reads it every year through her one-year Bible. And she said, yeah, the book of Joshua is so bloody. I like it. I think it's a great book. But the first part is first 10, 11 chapters, lots of stories and things happening. And then the, the, the second half of the book, so much of just conquest after conquest, victory after victory, after slaughter, after place, where as they went through and they, they, they had all of these wars. Well, the very first one was a city called Jericho. New, new group of people. I don't know how you wander around the wilderness in, in, in Egypt for 40, in the Sinai for 40 years and become trained soldiers. But they had an army. Maybe they did some training while they were there. And then the first big battle, walled cities of Jericho, most fortified city in, the, in Canaan. Walls 30 feet high and 15 feet thick, houses built into the walls. And, and, and the Lord shows up to Joshua and he says, Joshua, I, I, I want you to, to, to take Jericho as, in, as part of the inheritance. And he said, here's the plan of how you're going to take Jericho. He said, on the first day, I want you to get the priests and the worship team and put them out front. And I want you to march around the city one time on day one. And do it again on the second day and the third day. And on the seventh day, I want you to march around the city seven times. Have the worship band, the worship band and, the, and the pastors out front, the soldiers in the back. Walk around the city. Then have the, have the priests blow the trumps. Have the worship band fire up. Have all the people shout in faith. And the walls of Jericho will come tumbling down. You want to talk about a step of faith? Joshua had to go back and tell his generals what the war plan was So he gets back to the war room And his generals are there with their ribbons on and they're ready for the war plan He's like man. I just been with god and I gave me this amazing war strategy and they're like. Oh, yeah What are we gonna do? Are we gonna wall up the city? Are we gonna starve them out? Are we gonna go over the top with ladders and come in with our archers? How are we gonna do it joshua? And he says, um, we're gonna put the worship team and the pastors out front and we're going to praise the Lord and sing worship songs and, and, and dance around the city, you know, kind of wiggle while we walk around the city. And then on the last day, we're going to yell. And then the walls are going to fall down. We're going to go in and kill them. <laughs> that's faith. But that's exactly what happened. You know, what's, what's crazy is, right? And the next verse says in 31, it says, by faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe. Now, the story is the spies went in and kind of a strange place for a couple of Christian men to go into the, the whorehouse. But that's where they ended up and they find Rahab. And Rahab was, um, she believed it, Bible says. She had heard of the conquest of, of the God of Israel. And, and so she knew they were at her door. And she said, I've heard the stories and I believe in that God. That, those stories are real. And I've heard what, he, what he's done. And I want to be on your side. And they said, okay. And to this day, there's one section of the walls of Jericho in antiquity. And when we go to Jericho, we're in Israel and we visit it. You can see it to this day. There's one piece of the wall of Jericho that didn't fall down. Any guess what piece that is? Where Rahab's house was, and it's there to this day. Only piece of the city wall that didn't fall down. Because Rahab, and then, and then interestingly enough, here, this is verse 31, right? What, is, what does God say about Rahab in verse 31? By faith, the hooker. I mean, wow, I don't, you know, it's like he's still, but yet she's a Gentile. She runs a brothel. and And do you know what God does in her life? He makes her the great, 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 skip a few great grandmothers of Jesus. It's like, oh, I like her. I'm going to put her in the heritage of the, the God of heaven, the Messiah, the, the Son of God, and redeem her life. In order for her to become the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus and be in the very line of Messiah, and be chosen out of this pagan country and this pagan place and a pagan woman who was found in a brothel when the Lord found her, she had to get married and have kids and live a normal life, so she, her lifestyle changed. And in order to fit in this, she, she, she settled down, she repented, she gave her life to God. She got married to, to a Hebrew, and she had children, and she, she raised godly children who went on to, to raise godly children, and God completely redeemed her life. And a powerful story that God chose Rahab to be in the line of Messiah. And it just speaks God's grace and mercy to all of us. It's just just the way that God works to let us know that there's no sins that are unredeemable. There's nothing that that he doesn't want to do. And then he says in verse 32, And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, of Barak, of Samson, of Jephthah, and also of David and, and Samuel the prophets. And so now he doesn't give us the little details he gave us in the first half of the chapter where he would tell you a little something about Abraham and Moses and Noah. This time he just doesn't have time. It's like, I can relate to this. I have lots of things to say, but that stupid clock just keeps clicking down. <laughs> 39, 38, 37. I just, I, so he, I, not that I don't have something to say. I just don't have no time. So he says, I'm running out of time. Time would fail me to tell you of Gideon and Barak and Samson. Gideon, Barak, and Samson were judges in the nation of Israel. There were a period before King David in Israel's history. They didn't have monarchs and kings that didn't come until later under um, uh, Saul and David. Before that, they would have a judge or a prophet who God would raise up, and they would, they would be a theocracy, a, a nation governed by God. And that was God's will for the nation of Israel all through history is that, that Israel would be different. And their government um, that he laid out for them would be um, governed by God. Even the name Israel means governed by God. And so um, they eventually rebelled, and they, they wanted a king like the other nations, and, and God responded and gave them a king. But, but before that, you have these three names here, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, or Gideon. And they lived in the period of the judges and led the nation of Israel through some major battles. You guys remember Gideon and his 300 against 135,000 Midianite soldiers. And again, they, this time they weren't armed with the worship team with shofars. They were armed with a torch with a pot over it and, and a little stick to break the pot. And that's how God gave them the victory, 300 versus 135,000 you know, Samson and Barak's story. You know, Barak's story is a little interesting because he didn't even really have faith of his own. At the time, there was, a, there was a female judge named Deborah in the book of Judges. And God spoke to Deborah and Deborah went to Barak and said, you need to lead this army against these enemies. And the, and the enemy army in this story, true, were um, chariots and horses, fortified chariots of the day. And, and and Barak was, was afraid of these chariots and how brutal they were in war. And and Deborah said, Go, God has called you and He's gonna He's gonna give you a miraculous victory. Step out in faith. And Barak said, I'm not going unless you go with me. And now he'll go down in history as a guy who wouldn't go to war unless the chick went with him. She said, Alright, I'll go with you. She he she said, but you're you're gonna lose some of your glory. And and they're gonna give me credit for this battle and this fight. And it's a great story. If you don't, if you don't know it, read Judges. They, they go down and, and, and bear by faith here in Hebrews and where God only records the positive things in the New Testament, only by grace. And they go down in these, these formidable chariots and God just brings a big rain into this valley. And the ground becomes so saturated that the chariot will sink all the way to the bottoms of the chariots and they're stuck and can't go anywhere. And the nation of Israel just come through and get victory. Now, He, he was afraid. Why was Barak afraid? Because they had chariots. But don't don't be afraid. Because you take God out of the equation. God shows up. Like, no problem for God. I'll just sink the chariot wheels, you know, four feet into the mud. And they won't be able to go anywhere. And you can go in and wipe them out. And then your problems. God says step out in faith. But there's chariots. Ah, I can handle chariots. God can handle your chariots. Tell your neighbor, God can handle your chariots. Step out in faith. And then it says in verse 33... Um, I'm sorry, verse 32. And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell you of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword out of weakness, were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. So every one of these categories, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of... um, out of weakness were made strong. You know, these fit into a lot of these guys, David, Samson, um, different things where they would all fit in these categories. Um, some specific, some kind of general. Verse 35, women received their dead raised to life again. Anybody remember that story in the Old Testament? The widow and Elijah, Elijah, who, who raised the widow's son in name. And then it says in verse 35, listen, I want you to keep key on this. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. These these were tortured for their faith. In the first century, six million Christians were killed by the, 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 the I, was, I keep wanting to say pharaohs of Rome, not the pharaohs of Rome, the Nero's of Rome. Six million Jews in the first century. First hundred years of the of the birth of the early church 6 million Jews lost their their lives for their faith in the last 10 years we've lo- more Christians have been killed than all of history combined so we we far surpassed that now you know we and we miss it here in the west oftentimes 2 million Syrian Christians in the last 5 years displaced or killed in the genocide that took place in Syria in the last 5 7 years you know try try taking a bible to Saudi Arabia and standing on a corner near Mecca and preaching the gospel. You will go on a diet because in about 45 minutes you'll be in Chop Chop Square where they'll be taking your head off and you'll be a head lighter. We we don't experience the kind of persecution here in the United States, but it does exist and it is real. And to this day and in this time that we live in right now, more Christians are dying for their faith than any other time in human history, the persecution. In so many of these, these countries around the world where there's no religious freedoms and we don't face them. But if for these people, they were tortured. And it says that they didn't renounce their faith so that they would obtain a better um, resurrection. Read it. I want you to key on it. Verse 35, second half. Otherwise, were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. You know, I used to ask myself about this whole concept, right? Like, and again, it's not something we'll face. But, you know, the old, the old thing where... You're being tortured, and all you have to do is renounce your faith in Jesus, and we'll stop. You know, ISIS has actually done this, right? ISIS will give you an opportunity. If you'll renounce your faith, then, then they'll let you go. But if you won't renounce your faith, they'll kill your children in front of you. And if and, and, and you still won't renounce your faith, then they'll start raping your wife or your sister or somebody in front of you and, and all of these things. And then eventually they'll chop your head off in an orange vest on, on TV and air it if you won't renounce your faith. And as you watch this, you know, I don't know sometimes I ask myself, like, does, is, is it, does it matter? Like, what if you just gave him lip service? Does God really care? Oh, yeah, okay, I renounce my faith. Okay, you can go. Now I can go on and serve Jesus? And, or did I, is, is, there, is there some value in receiving and being tortured, being, having my fingernails ripped out, burned alive, whatever they do? The, you know, these torture methods are sick and, and twisted, right? And I'm being tortured. Am I supposed to? Does God really desire? Is it God's will for me to not renounce my faith even in torture? And I, I just kind of pondered the idea, the question. And, and I think this kind of gives me a biblical answer to that question. I, think, I, I don't think we're supposed to renounce our faith. I believe God's going to give you the grace. And, 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 you know, by the grace of God, none of us in here are probably ever going to have to deal with this or, 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 or suffer it. But you do need to be praying. We do need to be praying because it is a reality. And your Christian brothers and sisters around the world are facing similar things especially under the terror of ISIS that that thankfully now has subsided and and just changed faces. But it says here that they did not, they refused or they were tortured, not accepting deliverance. And why would they not accept deliverance? What does it say? So they might obtain a better resurrection. So there's a better resurrection. There's some better fruit. There's reward. There's one of the crowns the Bible talks about. There's a crown of the martyr. That's one crown I don't want. There's seven crowns that God says you can earn when you get to heaven, the Bible says. I'll take six of them. The seventh one is for the martyr, but a better resurrection. There's a lot of theology in that little verse. If there's a better resurrection, does that mean that there's a worse resurrection? Some people all same, same location. We're all in heaven. Some have a better place than others. I think that's what the Bible teaches pretty clearly here and in the Bema Seat Judgment and other places. that you're, What you do is not about, listen, if you're a born-again Christian, you've got to understand this. You don't lose your salvation. You don't commit a sin, and then you don't go to heaven because you sin, and then you've got to repent, and then you get to go to heaven. You're going to heaven regardless. All your sins are redeemed, past, and present, forgiven. God knew when he saved you that you were going to make that mistake before you made it. He's already forgiven. He's already shed his blood. Repent, confess, and move on. It's not a matter of whether you go to heaven or hell at that point. It is a matter of reward. It's a matter of this principle of a better resurrection. So the things, the decisions, the choices that we make, the, the service that we give, it doesn't take us out of heaven. I want us to get away from that idea. And again, some places, you know, you come and every Sunday, you, if you had a bad week, you, you know, you sinned or you did something in the week. On Sunday, you've got to come up and ask for Jesus in your heart and get saved again. We don't do that. Once saved, always saved, unless you walk away. Can't lose your salvation. I think there are some that have left their salvation, but you don't lose it. And so the issue is reward. The issue is heaven. The issue is a better resurrection. Amen. And then it says in verse 36, still others had trials of mockings and scourgings. Yes, of chains, of imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. Sawn in two, we're not really sure, but tradition tells us that was the prophet Isaiah who wrote 66 books in the Bible. That one of the torture methods of his day was to saw you from your crotch to your skull. Um sawn in two long ways with a wooden saw. I don't know if a wooden saw is good or badder. Gooder gooder or badder. If it's worse or better, but sawn in two and and not this way, this way. And so Isaiah, tradition says, was the the one that, that, that Paul is talking about here that was sawn in two. And again, without recanting his faith. We're tempted, we're slain. With the sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. What was the promise? Somebody got it right. I heard it. Like third row. Somebody preach it. What was the promise? Jesus. Come on. If you don't know the answer in church, just yell Jesus. There's a good chance you'll be right. The promise was Jesus. The promise was Messiah would come and save the world. That Messiah would come and redeem the world back to God. That Adam and Eve forfeited the world, but that Messiah would come. The Old Testament folks understood very clearly there was a promise of a coming Messiah, and it was fulfilled. And today we understand very clearly there's a promise that that same Messiah who came, born in a manger, lived a sinless life, died a brutal death, rose again the third day, conquered sin and death on your behalf, is coming back. And we need to live expectant that Jesus is coming back every day of your life. He could come back today. And if he doesn't come back today and you live today like he could come back, it purifies how you live. It makes you live a better life. You live a pure life because you believe Jesus could come back at any moment. And that's Bible. And that's what the Bible teaches. You know, the Apostle Paul lived his life really believing that Jesus would come back in his lifetime. And people say, well, why would the Apostle Paul 2,000 years ago live his life in such a way that he thought? Because that's the way God did it. Does that that mean he's never going to come because he hasn't come yet? No. The Bible says that the mockers will say that exact thing. And guess what they're saying today? He's not going to come because he hasn't come yet. Y'all keep saying that. You're fulfilling biblical prophecy that means he's coming. Because Paul says, Peter said, in the last days, men will begin to say this. He is coming. And then the Bible says there's signs of the times. And guess what, what the world is full of today? Signs of the times. Another cog in the wheel. Another, another spoke in the wheel. And eventually that, that it's going to be complete and fulfilled. And Romans 11.25 is the rapture. When the last Gentile believer comes in, that the the, the 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 stage and the age of the of the bride of Christ and the church is over, and that Jesus is going to come for His bride. And it says, um, in we're going to go into chapter twelve, but relax, take a deep breath. I'm just going to cover a couple of verses in twelve. It says, therefore, now you got to stop right there, right? Now you know in the original text that paul wrote he didn't write chapter and verse breaks those were added later for our convenience to find places in the bible so sometimes they did a a very 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 good job the scripture is inspired but the chapter and verse breaks maybe not so much all the time or maybe they just had to do it for convenience and not necessarily for flow but this all flows together this could be one chapter one one thought and so here we have this break but not really because he says therefore therefore what? Therefore, everything that I just told you in chapter 11. Now, again, Paul is the greatest writer in human history. You know, nobody ever, ever hold a candle to the articulation and the level of of literature that Paul wrote. The greatest literature that's ever been penned. And the. Romeo and Juliet. Shakespeare. Shakespeare Shakespeare didn't have nothing on on Paul. And and Paul writes for, for nine chapters of Hebrews. Deep theological doctrinal issues he gets into 10 he changes the subject a little bit And then he gets into 11 and he starts applying all these things to our lives He takes 11 to be a cheerleader in our lives to be a testimony for us a cloud of witnesses He's going to call it to be able to encourage you that you can walk in faith that you can trust god God showed up in every one of these lives for the last four thousand years And here are all the stories and all these men stepped out in faith and god never once left him or forsook him He he, he was there. He'll be there for you Therefore, since you've seen that it can happen and it will happen and that these stories are true and that God will and wants to do this in your in your life. Therefore, this is how you now apply it to your life. Therefore, what does he say? We also, since we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, who's the great cloud of witnesses? Everybody in chapter 11, right? All the names and all the people and all these witnesses of chapter 11 that, that tell you you can trust God. Therefore, since you see and you know that you can trust God in your life, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And then in verse 2, he's going to tell you how to do that. But the instruction first is in an in a, um, athletic competition metaphor, that, that it's like your, your Christian life is a race. Some of you identify with that. I look around. I see some runners, some cross-country runners, some marathon runners. Me, obviously, you could tell I don't run very far. I run to the kitchen and back with a bag of chips. That's about it. But in in a run, and and, and listen, as a Christian, your run of faith, your race of life, it's not a sprint. This is not Usain Bolt in the 40-yard dash. You will be devastated and disappointed as a Christian. And too many people come out of the blocks that way. They get down in their walk and they're walking with Jesus and they sprint really fast. They run out of wind and air and, 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 they, and they miss something. Listen, it's a marathon. Something you may do for 40 years. Miss Sue lived, moved here with Lydia and I when, we came, when God called us to plant this church. She had done ministry with me for 15 years in the children's ministry, and we've been here for six. And you know, and she had been there before I was, 30 years of just faithfully, she's next door now, serving your kids and watching and giving your kids Jesus. Same thing she's been doing for 30 years faithfully. She's not Billy Graham and doesn't preach in crusades, and she, she just faithfully serves Jesus for 30 years in a marathon. And guess what God's going to say to her when she gets to heaven? Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. The same exact words that Billy Graham's going to hear. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Because it's not not based on what God called us to. It's based on how faithful we were to do what God's called us to do. And and so Billy Graham and Miss Sue, they're going to hear the same words of acceptance when they get to heaven. And so Paul says here um, that, that in this race that we run, it's a marathon, first of all. And then he says there's a right way to run. One of my favorite athletes, he's just... I don't know, he's exciting to watch for me, is Usain Bolt. He's the fastest man on planet Earth like the last eight years, the last two Olympics, and I don't know if he still has his crown as of today or somebody's beat him, but he's been the fastest person on planet Earth. Every Olympics, he breaks the record that he set in the last one. He's so fast and so amazing to watch Usain Bolt run. But I'll tell you, if Usain Bolt came out in the Olympics and he came to the starting blocks and he had the weights that he trained with on his ankles... And the weight vest on his back, how well is he going to run that race against the world's finest? As fast as he is, he's not going to win the race. It would make no sense. We could all say very clearly, that's stupid. Get rid of those weights. Why would you, why would you carry those weights down the racetrack? You're not going to win. Oh, I can wear them. You can wear the weights to run, sure, but you can't wear the weights to win. This runner was joining a, a running team, and he came to the running coach, and he said, Coach, Can I smoke and run? And the coach said, yeah, you can smoke and run. He said, you can't smoke and win, (laughs) but you can smoke and run because it's a hindrance to your race. And so Paul says here in the race of of following Jesus to lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnare us. I want you to understand and, and identify here there's a distinct difference between weights and sins. Now sins, why does Paul make two categories? Weights and sins. In the book of Romans, he gives us the theology behind it. In the book of Corinthians, because there are two categories in life. Sins that are listed here lay aside the weights and the sins. Sins are black and white. Seven different times in the New Testament, we get a list of deadly sins. Deadly sins is a worldly thing, but I thought it just kind of hit home a little harder. We get a list of the sins. Fornication, drunkenness, lewdness, lasciviousness um lying stealing those things adultery fornication um gluttony gluttony, on and on and on these things are black and white the bible identifies them as sin if you're doing these things they're sinful anger malice wrath included in the list seven times the, the the list is listed so read the list any sex outside of marriage is sin if you're getting drunk it's sin If you're living a a promiscuous lifestyle or a partying lifestyle, it's sin. Those things are black and white. Now, there's other parts of life that Paul here talks about in this particular instance as weights. What would be a weight? That's not necessarily a sin. Listen, there are some things the Bible says that are sin for me that are not sin for you. Some things that if I do them, I'm sinning against God. If you do them, you have liberty and vice versa. Anything that God has told me to stop doing is, is sin for me. For example, I, I, I got a job at the school at the, where we were coaching golf. Now, I know nothing about golf. I'd never played golf before. I was a glorified bus driver. Um, I brought in swing coaches, and I, and I managed the kids. But I got to play free golf every day. And, and, I, and I got to like, take the classes along with the kids, and I started playing golf later in life because our golf coach quit in the middle of the season and I did it for a couple of years. And, and, and one Saturday, I'm driving down to play golf. The, the boys were all young. Um, Luke, Nate, and Caleb were all born, probably all under five years old. And Lydia's home with the boys, and I'm on my way to play golf. And the guy sitting next to me is in a competition for a hole-in-one competition. You go down, you pay a dollar a ball, and you hit a bunch of balls. And if you get really close, it in- qualifies you for the next thing. And these guys go down and throw hundreds of bucks and hit all these balls. And eventually, they they get in, and he, he got second place in the competition. It's, it's the Nabisco Classic, which is part of the LPGA. They, get, they give away cars and stuff for this amateur hole-in-one competition if you make a hole-in-one at the thing. And, and, and he won the competition a couple of years ago. And he had spent so much of his life getting good at golf. And I'm driving down to play golf on a Saturday, Palm Springs, the golf mecca of the world. And um, Lydia's home with the kids, and I just get convicted, and I just know I'm not supposed to be in that car. And I'm thinking to myself, man, if I follow the lifestyle of the guy that's driving and all this stuff and listening to him, he's a great guy. Dude loved Jesus. He taught fifth and sixth grade at our church faithfully. But I'm like, when I get to heaven and I stand before Jesus, he's going to say, what did you do? What did you give? And I, what I don't want to say to Jesus on that day is I got really good at golf. I could play scratch golf. No, I needed to get my butt home. My, my wife was home with three small kids, and I probably should have been home that Saturday, not out playing golf. And so for me, God said, hey, it's sin. Now, I have liberty to play golf. I still play golf every once in a while. I'm the world's worst golfer still to this day. I don't think I've ever broke 100. But, um, but it can be sinful for me where somebody else has liberty because God spoke to me about a lifestyle that was getting in the way of my walk with God. You know, wait, you have liberty as Christians to have a drink, and this is the biggest problem in the church, probably identified with many of you, is how do you use or, or not abuse the liberty that God gives us in the Bible to have a drink? And unfortunately, it, it's, it's highly abused, and it, it really is one of the biggest hindrance from people really selling their lives out to Jesus because they, they don't want to give that part up, and they say, oh, I have liberty. Yeah, you do have liberty. But the Apostle Paul, listen, the Apostle Paul processed life very differently. This is very important in this concept. And I want you to know this. Actually, I want you to turn there with me. Let's go 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Beginning in verse number 12. There's a little progression through Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 6.12. Now listen, Paul never... You guys are still looking and turning pages, but I want eyes, so I'm going to wait for you. Okay, we got eyes. Okay, listen, Paul never processed life like this. What, is, what can I get away with, and what is, what is, what can I, what is sin? What in life is, is liberty, and I have it so I can do it, and it's cool. God's, it's not sin against God, and, and, and I can live it. Paul never looked at life that way. These are black and white. I won't do these. This is what I want to do. Paul looked at life like, forget whether it's sin or not. Is it helpful to me? Is it helpful to my race? You know am I, am I eating the vitamins? am I am I taking care of my body? Hussein Bolt just comes he doesn't just come out and, and and run a seven second 40 yard dash. No, forty <laughs> yeah. what is it the The hundred meter, hundred meter I'm sorry, hundred meter dash. He prepares, he does things that are helpful to, that, to win that race. He eats a certain way, he prepares, he trains, he lifts weights. So things that are helpful in his in his thing, are, those are the things that he's going to do. Could he eat cheeseburgers? Sure, he could eat cheeseburgers and go out and run, but it's not helpful to his race. So Paul didn't look at life like what's sinful and what's not. He looked at it like what's going to help me serve Jesus? What's going to help me grow in my walk with Jesus? What's going to help me get closer to Jesus? Those are the things I want to do. Look at it with me really quick and then we're going to wrap up. Verse, 1 Corinthians 6.12, you guys there? All things are lawful for me. What, what things are lawful for you as a Christian? I mean, all things, right? And we're not talking about the black and white sins things. Those things are not lawful for you. Lying, stealing, cheating, sex outside marriage, getting drunk, on and on and on that list, wrath, malice, those things are not lawful for you. Those things are sin. But again, in the in evident the area of just life, you know, the thing that we deal with, right, is like, and I get this a lot. What, what TV programs as a Christian should I watch? What, sh- am I allowed as a Christian to watch R-rated movies? What video games are, should I play? What music should I listen to? I hear, I hear it often. And those are the weights. Those are the gray areas that I, I, I can't be somebody's Holy Spirit and tell them what's right and what's wrong in, in these areas of what movies you should watch. and what I have my personal convictions. And, and, and it might be wrong for me, but not wrong for you. And it would only be wrong for me because God has spoken to my heart that, hey, I don't want you doing that stuff. And I just have a check in my spirit about it. And I don't want to put it in my life. And, and so I just don't. But I would never come to you and say, hey, yeah, you, you watch Brother on TV, Big Brother? Oh, you're sinful. You're a sinner. You saw Game of Thrones? You're a terrible Christian. <laughs> like, I never do that. You listen to this music, whatever. Like, I'm not your Holy Spirit. And if I preach a Jesus that's alive and loves you and, and can speak to you, then I've got to get out of the way and let Jesus speak to your heart on these issues. But listen, I would encourage you as a believer to seek Jesus. It's Jesus. What does verse 2 of Hebrews 11 say? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Now, now I want to finish this progression real quick. Verse 12 says, All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Do you know what happens with your Christian liberty? It can become a bondage. You know what happens with your Christian liberty to have a drink every once in a while? You begin to feel like you you can't get home from work at night and not have beer. You, your your liberty becomes bondage and can become bondage. And Paul said, "I want to be careful with my Christian liberty because I, I don't want it to become a bondage in my life. I, I don't I don't want to be in bondage to anything. I don't want to be in bondage to Twinkies or apple pies or drugs or alcohol or." Or tv programs or golf or anything in my life and all those things are lawful But I don't want to be under the submission of any And I saw the writing on the wall that if I pursued that life of golf You have to practice and you have to work hard and You got to play a lot if you want to ever get good at golf And I knew there was going to be a discipline in life that if I was serious I was going to have to play a lot of golf in order to To, to get competitive and get where I wanted to be to really enjoy myself with my personality And i'm like no way and God spoke to me on that car that I'm not going to put that work in that I know I need to. I'm just going to get rid of this. It's not even that great. also a four-letter word for a reason. <laughs> and so I'm just going to, you know. And then look at, look at chapter 8, verse number 9. 1 Corinthians, chapter 8, verse 9. A little progression here. But beware lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. So listen, you also have Christian liberty, but Paul says if your Christian liberty causes a weaker brother to stumble into sin, then then that's something also you want to consider in in, in what you do. So you have liberty to have a drink, and and you're not a former alcoholic and never have had a problem with alcohol. You can drink one beer and and not get drunk and be good and and have a glass of wine with dinner with your wife. It's not sin, and it's fine. But if you have that glass of wine with your, with your wife at dinner and, 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 and your neighbor or your Christian friend comes who's just recently got delivered and, and, and has been through rehab for alcohol and sees you drinking, and that causes them to stumble, and Paul says, I don't, I don't want to do that either. I don't want, to, I don't want my liberty to stumble a weaker brother. So I've got to watch that. And then the last part of the progression is chapter 10, verse 23. Just turn the page 1. It's in 1 Corinthians. kind of says the same thing. He says, listen, all things are lawful for me. But not all things are helpful all things are lawful for me, but not all things edify chapter 10 verse 23 of first corinthians All things are lawful, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify So paul says those things don't edify I just don't want to do them because they don't help me And if we process life that way You know if we didn't want to live christianity just right on the edge How close to hell can I get and go to heaven? Woo feels kind of good you know, like get away from the edge and, and, and we don't want to live our lives. There's no blessing there. You know, and unfortunately for too many Christians, we live with one foot in the world and one foot in the church. And we we know enough about Jesus. We believe enough in Jesus. We know it's true that. But but yet we don't want to take that foot out of the world. And so we have one foot in the world that's miserable because we have the other foot in the church. And the foot that's in church is miserable because the foot that's in the world is uncomfortable. Just get your stinking stinky feet out of the world and put them both in the church. Put them both in Jesus, and then you won't have to live in that misery and walk on that edge. Let's go back to Hebrews real quick, and we're done. We are done, but I'm not going to finish without reading verse number 2 at least. Eleven two. How do we do this? How do we get rid of the weights and the sins which so easily ensnare us? How fast, how fast does this stuff that Paul says ensnare us? How hard or easy? It says easily ensnares us. These weights, these sins, they can easily ensnare our walk. Maybe here's a challenge before we get to verse 2. Maybe you guys in here, between you and Jesus, would identify something in your life today, this morning, this Sunday, that can be a weight. You don't got to tell anybody. just between you and the Lord. I'm not asking anybody to come up and confess their weights to me or their sins to me. Just, just identify something. Take this verse and, and, and put it in your grocery bag and make a difference in your life this week identify a part of your life that may be a weight, and and, and again, make sure God spoke that to you and that, that, that God has confirmed that, and if there's something in your life that's, that you've identified or God has helped you identify as a weight, then lay it aside, as Paul says. Now, how do you do that? Verse 2 tells you, looking unto Jesus. It's Jesus, baby. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. You just can't fake that. It's Jesus that has the power. It's Jesus that heals. It's Jesus that changes. It's Jesus that delivers. It's Jesus that that, that has real power to be with you 24-7 and to speak to you, to encourage you, to correct you, to love you. And it's plugging into Jesus. It's talking to Jesus. It's reading the Bible. It's knowing Jesus more. Another sermon about read your Bible and pray. Yeah, that's all I got, you guys. Go to a different church if you want to hear a different message because that's the only one I got. Read your Bible and pray every day. Love Jesus. That's, That's it. And then it says, uh, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the father. So he endured the cross. He didn't like it. Sweat great drops of blood in the garden of Gethsemane. But it says he endured the cross, despising the shame. They spit on his face. The spit of of the people around him was running off his beard. They ripped his beard out of his face to cause pain. They put a bag on his head, and then they showed him their hands, and then they put a bag on his head, and they would take turns punching him blindly in the face where he would take the full blunt of the blow, and then they would take the bag off his head, and they would say, prophesy, prophesy if you're God. Which one of these hands is the one that punched you? Then they stripped him naked, and they hung him on a cross, died a brutal, brutal death, After thirty nine lashes with a cat and nine tails, carried his cross down the Via Dolorosa to the point where he collapsed under the weight of it and couldn't carry it another step, and they called the guy out of the crowd to finish carrying Jesus' cross the rest of the way to Calvary. It says that he despised the shame, he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. What's the joy? It's you. You're the joy. You're the prize. He, did, he, he, he went to the cross and he despised the shame and he endured all that so that one day when you breathe your last or you go up in the rapture that you'll stand before Jesus. He can smile and hug you and tell you, I love you. Welcome in. And he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. He who was rich became poor so that you and I might inherit eternity. And so for the joy that was set before Jesus. The joy was you and I I think God gave Jesus a little glimpse of the joy on the cross in the worst, worst point in human history. And in the agony of 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 the separation that Jesus was anticipating, where Psalm 22 says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me as God poured out all of your sins and all of my sins and all the sins of the world and all the wrath of God upon his son on the cross. And just before that moment. The Bible prophesied in Isaiah that he would be hung between two thieves And one of the thieves on on either side said to Jesus, um, I believe in you, I repent. Remember me. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. And he got to experience just even on the cross a little glimpse of that power of saving grace that Jesus had for dying for your sins and my sins. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stand. Hey, I went over a little bit, you guys, so we're not going to close with a song today. Um, So I'm just going to encourage you guys. We still want to pray for you, though. We don't want to. Um, miss anybody's prayer needs? Let's um, since we don't have a song. let's, Can we use the conference room today, Darlene? Let's open the conference room today. Okay, Jay, you and Allie, mine. see if anybody shows up. Hey, um, if you go out of the church and you make a left, Darlene and Kevin, uh, Jason and Allie. I don't know if Pat's got, Pat's probably going to get in the coffee shop in case somebody wants a coffee to go. Um, but we're here to pray for you, encourage you, meet your needs. If there's something going on in your life today. If you want to ask Jesus in your heart to be your Lord and Savior, go to the prayer room before you leave. So when you exit here, again, make a left down there, and they'll just be hanging out back there. And and they'd love to pray for you, anoint you with oil if you need physical healing. Uh, If you have something you want to share, if you need a Bible, they'll give you a Bible. um, And and take that time. And then again, the verse for for today. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which so easily ensnares us. And run our race with endurance, the race set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him, despising the shame, endured the cross, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. Amen? Amen. Father God, we love you. We thank you. And Jesus, that we might lay aside every weight and sin in our lives and, and, and look to Jesus. And how do we lay it aside? We look to Jesus. I know in my own life, God, that I started growing in Jesus and reading my Bible, and and I forgot to do some sins that I used to do, and I just didn't want to do them anymore because I was just walking with Jesus. And so, Father, I pray for all of us that we would just start focusing on Jesus, and we would find that we didn't have to focus on stop sinning. We just don't want to do it anymore. And, God, that the power is in Jesus, and that if we walk in the Spirit, we'll not fulfill the deeds of the flesh. And so, Father, we thank you. We praise you. We give you glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. We love you guys. Have a great week. Again, you're you're invited to take a left if you'd like prayer.